from KQED. Are you ready for a 2016 political war over government pensions? Could be a possibility, given what we found out this week. That is our top talker, top event in this week's California Politics Podcast. Thanks for checking us out. It's the weekend in June 5th. I'm John Myers of KQED News. Anthony York of the Grizzly Bear Project is here, while KQED's Marisa Lagos has uh, jetted away to a reporting conference this week. You guys pay for that? (laughs) Apparently we did. The question is, is she at the reporting conference? Uh, Who? Who knows? Who knows? Who cares? Who cares? She's. I mean, I mean, not who cares. We all miss her greatly. I'm saying. Yes. I'm sure whatever she's doing, it will, uh, it will color her journalism. Good, and she'll come back with uh, lots of things to tell us about uh, next week. I'm sure. So uh, I think we can handle this. We're going to try our best uh, to muddle through what happened this week. Pensions is topic one, uh, and then we're going to pivot. To the poll, a new statewide poll that's chock full of everything from uh, water worries to tax reform and legalizing marijuana. And then topic three, Jerry Brown's not-so-secret weapon in Sacramento, the First Lady. But let's dive in with pensions first. On Thursday, the long-talked-about new chapter in the pension war began. We've all been waiting for this, I think, at least in political circles, was it going to happen? Uh, Former San Jose Mayor Chuck Reed and former San Diego City Councilman Carl DeMaio, among others, filed a 2016 initiative that reigns in, or would reign in, I should say, public employee pensions. Before we dish on the politics, let me sketch out the the big components to this measure as we understand them, since it just landed in our hand on Thursday. Voters under this initiative would have to approve any pension plans for new employees and local and state government in California that are traditional pensions. Uh, Voters would also have to approve any increase in pension benefits for existing workers on the local and state level. And only voters could allow local or state government to pay more than half of a pension's cost. So that means workers would largely have to always at least split the cost. Now, you tell me, Mr. York, but it strikes me as, um, I don't know, as a pretty carefully crafted measure that seems like it avoids uh, some of what the critics really want, the zealous critics of pensions, right? They want to crack open the promised benefits that current workers already have. But boy, this whole vote of the people thing, I mean, that, that kind of puts a cap on everything. Well, essentially, yeah. And what, what that would mean is no more defined benefit or traditional pensions. Uh, new ones, you mean. New ones. And instead, it would go to what are known as defined contribution, more like 401k plans. That, that would be the net effect of this. Um, you know, we can talk a lot about the politics about this. And look, as long as it's still only $200 and not $8,000 to file an initiative, and we can talk about all the all the bills that were passed the House of Origin this week, including one that would up the fees for, for, for initiatives. But um, but this is, uh, this is a, I, I know that uh, Carl DeMaio, former councilman in San Diego, and Chuck Reed, Democrat, former mayor of San Jose, have been working together on this. But this is really uh, a proposal on the come. We saw Chuck Reed get involved in this in 2014, uh, looking for money, uh, you know, from out of state, probably, to, uh, to, to make a run at this, knowing that this, knowing full well this would attract a $100 million campaign from the unions to kill it. And, uh, and none ever materialized. It got tubed after a, 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 a what they what they called a, and let's say an unflattering title and summary from the uh, from the attorney general uh, back in 2014. And I think there are some real questions about how real this effort is in 2016. It has to go through that title and summary process again. And given all as we've discussed on this podcast, given the the electorate in 2016, that's going to be a presidential year. It's going to be more democratic. 
you wonder if this might not end up being a proposal that ends up on the 2018 ballot instead of the 2016. If you were going to ballot shop, I think in the abstract, you might want to do that. In the abstract, but a couple of things strike me. First of all, it's easier to get something on the ballot now than it has been in a generation. We've said that like a Google Times. That used to be a word before it became Google. It was a number before it was a search engine. Thank you. Uh, But we've said it like a zillion. We'll use that term. We've said it like a zillion times. It's easier to get something on the ballot. So you don't have to raise as much money to get it on the ballot. So, uh, yeah, it could be 2018, could be 2016. And then we'll talk about this poll in a moment. But I, I think the poll certainly measures some discontent out there that who knows which way it could be uh, pushed, depending on who the electorate is. But I think the I mean, you raised the question that I'm curious about is like, is the money there to back the campaign? That, we know the unions, the right? We know the unions will show up and put a lot of money out there to kill this measure. But the question is, will people with deep enough pockets come forward to to put a yes campaign on the on on the ticket? And will it work? I mean, look, we saw what was the total price tag on Prop Thirty Two? Was it thirty million dollars come in uh, for a for another uh, measure? You know, that was that was vehemently opposed by the labor unions. There was some anti uh, labor money, both both in state and out of state, as we discussed at the time. Um, and it didn't work out so well. I mean, I think there's sort of a political calculation too. And and look, this is part of a, a national fight. Um, you know, we and um, uh, it, it's obviously not going away. There are a lot of there are a lot of people. I mean, some Democrats, mostly Republicans, who are who are very concerned with what they see as overly generous uh, public employee pensions. Uh, there are a lot of people on the other side who would argue that's not the case, and that um, and that there's a lot of sort of um, hype and ulterior motives involved in that side. So if that's a that's a discussion that we may have over a couple hundred million dollars, uh, you know, at a, at a, a November to be determined. But um, this thing's a long way from done and certainly a long way from certain. The early reaction, as you might imagine it would be from uh, from organized labor is um, no way, no how. Um, uh, Dave Lowe, the, um, the well-identified spokesman on organized labor side, uh, released a couple of statements on Thursday that said it's another designed to f- destined to fail attempt to eliminate retirement security of teachers, firefighters, school bus drivers, and other public employees. You can see the television commercials now, right, with all of those people up there, um, things that they've gotten at the bargaining table, and then reminding people that the governor did this pension change a few years ago, and that that's already saving money, and uh, we have to let those changes work. Uh, Californians want those changes to work, he says, and they won't fall for this political stunt from a failed mayor and an extreme right-wing radio talk show host. There you go. <laughs> so there you have there you it. Go. That's the you know first first shot across the bow, and and right, we're we're a long ways away from there being a fight, but we've talked so much about the issue, and there is polling out there that has suggested that people. Um, they could have a conversation about pensions, and it may not be the conversation that organized labor wants. But, how, but I mean, I think guess what you're kind of saying here, and I guess I would agree with that, is how you thread that, right? How you thread that eye of that needle, how you, how you find the most salient way to make the point. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I do actually think it's interesting to, to ask the voters to approve anything. Um, first of all, that because that'll never happen. But also, that sounds like something people would sign if they were out on at their grocery store, right? If they saw that, they're like, yeah, I want to have a say on public employee pensions. Right. So to me, 
I think it has a pretty darn good chance of getting on the ballot if you've got enough seed money to get those signatures. But do you want to do that if there's no money for a campaign? I mean, uh, look, that, that's a good point, if, right? If, you, if, if you're you just doing the, it to do it. Yeah, if you yeah. get this on the ballot just to get labor to spend $75 million and you get crushed, you know, 60 40, um, what does that do to the real possibility of achieving any sort of pension changes in the future? I mean, does it, I mean, look at what happened with. With the lawyers and Micra, right? We had the fight over over um, medical, medical malpractice. malpractice caps uh, at, at the ballot box last year. You know that probably killed the Micra fight for another decade. So um, I think that there's some there's some calcul- political calculations that have to be made on the proponent side and and on the people who are who would potentially fund this initiative. If you're organized labor, though, right? I mean, if you see money come in for this. Not only do you have to really crack open your wallets, but doesn't it then change the calculus about everything else in 2016 for them? Other ballot measures, other things they want to play in, because you referenced Prop 32. Prop 32, that was their big thing. And that changed, that had to change the calculations of what they did in 2012 in some ways, because that was their number one thing. This would become their number one thing for 2016, right. potentially to the exclusion of other things. But if you go back to that 2012 ballot, there were still there was still the resources to pass Prop 30. There was the resources to reelect Barack Obama. I mean, there were, there were resources for other uh, labor priorities. And so, and, and there's even an argument to be made that putting 32 on the ballot boosted Prop 30 because there's thought that that it drove uh, that, that turnout. It drove turnout, and so would this galvanize, you know, organized labor to that because that's what labor does. They get people to the polls. They get Democrats to the polls. Um, so uh, again, I mean, I think it's it's not a simple political equation, um, and uh, and you know, I think this is a way of keeping the pension issue alive. You know, the governor has the governor talked about it in his January budget. We didn't hear a whole lot about it in the May revision. But he wants to he wants to address the issue of uh, retiree health benefits. Um, that was something that was not really addressed in the uh, in the uh, pension discussion. Um, and but he wants to do it through collective bargaining. You know, there have been all, there have been a lot of efforts to try to change existing uh, benefits for existing employees. And we saw a state Supreme Court case in Illinois recently that um, that sort of threw some more cold water on that idea. So it's it's not as easy as it might seem uh, to reform to reform pensions. And I think there are questions not only about the political viability of it, but also the legality under federal law for, for changing, for making some of the changes that they want to make. It's certainly one to watch. And, and uh, Reed and DeMaio were going to be the front two people here. Um, and, you know, that could be for better or for worse. Clearly, organized labor thinks they have talking points against them. But if you look at some of the other people they put out there, they put out the Democratic mayor, Mayors of, of, of cities around California, San Bernardino's mayor, uh, the former vice mayor of Vallejo. I'm afraid San we're Bernardino going. just emerging from bankruptcy. Yes, right. exactly. Uh, Pacific Grove, uh, mayor in Anaheim, a Republican. I mean, you know, they could make the argument that there are people out there. And it'll be, it, I think the real great question here maybe is, is what will that pension coalition look like? Will it include anybody who we've not heard from before who could be somebody that organized labor would have a harder time or a new challenge impugning their motives? So, and But what are they saying here? I mean, look, if we're not talking about benefits from, from uh, addressing benefits for existing employees, then we're really, we're really, when you see the locals involved, they're really saying Sacramento, 
save us from ourselves because we don't trust ourselves to Which negotiate is these contracts. What we saw in 2012 when the governor put forward that pension plan at the Capitol, right? Right, right, right. And and well, over the objections of a lot of labor unions at the time, and over the over the objections of some city leaders. But but it does bring up this whole issue of local control, right? And it's sort of the flip side of local control. If implicit in that argument is that locals can't be trusted to make these kind of pension agreements because they're going to make agreements that are too generous, that the unions are too powerful at the local unions, and that and that the, these elected officials on the local level are basically going to give away the store. I mean, that is the implicit argument here. And, and um, you know, that flies in the face of, of a lot of the rhetoric that's come out of, of Jerry Brown's mouth, for example, about local control and subsidiarity and all that and all the rest. Um, so, uh, you know, the process of this is as is as much a part of the discussion as the end result. The end result is for fiscal solvency for state and local government, um, but how you get there, I think, is uh, is is a matter of some debate, of some expensive debate. And and I and I can't say you know just one other thought from my end. I can't I can't say that there is any necessarily great thing about having a political slugfest over this. But I I have thought over the last few years. That it would be fascinating to try to get Californians to engage on the on the actual base issue here, not not the politics of this and who's trying to attack somebody's retirement security and who says we can't afford this. I mean, and, and yes, those are all parts of what I'm about to say, but I would I would love to see a base discussion at some point about what Californians think is the is the value of um, public safety employees and what they do and what they should get for what they do. Because all of the data shows that it's public and safety employee pensions that have driven the cost of pensions, police, sure. firefighters, uh, corrections officials, yeah. or people on the local level, probably more than the state level. It's not the clerk at DMV. It's not the person who sits here at, at this, um, you know, government desk job. It's not it's, Dave Lowe's people. It's not the janitors. It's not the bus drivers. It is public safety. And those people right. are mentioned in that statement there. But those are the ones that cost more because we have provided yeah. more generous retirement benefits for those folks. And at some point, there's this discussion that's never had about what the value of what they do is. You know, they say we put our lives on the line every day. And what do Californians think that is worth to them? I mean, that's a hard thing to wrestle with. But that's the one I would love to see someone try to ultimately get to. I know that's a little naive in the world of politics where campaigns are playing somewhere else. But that's the core issue. Yeah. And it should be noted that and when we in 2012, when the uh, when the governor pushed his pension reform measure through, um, there was a lot of talk, a lot of talk about a cap, and we ended up capping pensions at about one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year. Um, and when you talk about the cap, that split a lot of the community and organized labor because you're really talking about public safety, public safety, and UC administrators on one end of the cap. Sorry, I had to get that in. You had to put and, the UC administrators <laughs> and, in there, and everybody else on the other. You know, I mean, if you look at the people that Dave. Low represents. I mean, you're talking again about the the uh, school employees, the non-teachers mostly. So, you're talking about janitors and bus drivers. Those those people are not affected by a hundred thousand dollar pension cap. Um, it's the it's the police chiefs and the firefighters and 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 the other local public safety people who are. And so, um, you know, for new employees at least, there's been an effort to address that in state policy. Whether it was sufficient, there's obviously debate, um, but. 
But you know, I mean, you know as well as I do that, I mean, if you want to have a reasoned, rational discussion about this, uh, ballot initiatives are not always conducive to that. I mean, this is going to be, you know, uh, not out of always, state, out never, of state, Koch never. brothers, Wall Street, Raiders versus, right. you know, greedy public employee welfare queens or whatever it is, you know, whatever it is. So, uh, um, you know, get ready for that uh, that thoughtful debate. To would follow. you would you agree that if this was real and I think you've said all the appropriate things and I agree with them. And so I know our, our audience is you very smart. You just want to fight. I know you want to well, fight. I, yeah, I, I, yeah let's, let's do it. Let's mix it yeah. up, baby. Um, but if this were real, and we've said all the caveats that we don't know if it's real yet, translation, we don't know if there's money behind it to actually mount a real serious uh, campaign on this pension initiative. But if it was real, it would vault right up to the top, wouldn't it, of, of, of political things to watch in 2016, oh, of all the things we've talked about, taxes and pot. And, and and I'm not saying that those won't capture attention, but in raw political power, this would be the marquee fight. Yeah. And, and arguably the most expensive, depending on what happens with oil severance tax and tobacco tax. And, you know, but um, this would be a, a huge campaign. I mean, this would be um, and it would be also but also a national barometer. You know, there's all the talk about the Koch brothers wanting to spend a billion dollars in this election cycle. This is the kind of thing you could see them supporting, you know, and I mean, and what's uh, what is a hundred million dollars, but to them. But, you know, you go back. I go back and again, if our listeners can think of an example, I can't think of an example of a ballot initiative. Tweet it to Anthony if you can. (laughs) That has had a 50 million dollar no campaign. Maybe one of the tobacco taxes, maybe something like Prop 99. But, you know, but but other than that um, or uh, Prop 10, the Rob Reiner initiative. But. But other than tobacco tax, is there an issue that's had a well-funded no campaign uh, that's ever passed? And I, I, there just aren't many of them in California political history. If the money comes for the no side. Which it will. I mean, if this were right. real, that would be it. Yeah. Tomorrow, there'd be $75 million in a bank account. <laughs> just like I can have $75 million in a bank account tomorrow right. at noon. Via Zurich. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll keep watching. It'll be good. It'll be a good one to watch. But I wanted to put it at the top of the podcast because it just landed in our laps here as we we sat down to talk uh, for this week. So let's talk about topic two on this week's California Politics podcast: uh, a sampling of how California voters might feel as they head into that big twenty sixteen election season, and um, yeah, a lot of gloom um, in some ways. I mean, PPIC Public Policy Institute of California's poll. Um, offers that uh, tried and true right track, wrong track, right direction, wrong direction of California. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I did. It, it caught my attention and it's kind of the way I decided to write my my uh, my poll story on Wednesday night. The right direction has dropped nine points since just March. Um, and it's now at 40 percent of, of people think we're on the right track. Um, and it's fascinating to me. It flies in the face of, of um, more and more encouraging news about the California economy, job growth, and and the budget and other issues. Uh, Maybe water and the drought account for a chunk of that. In May 2014, when PPIC asked about the biggest issue facing California, it was 33% jobs economy, 12% water, flipped. Now, a reversal of the numbers, 39% water, drought, just 20% jobs and economy, all in the span of a year. Uh, But I think the big picture is that there's an unsettled California out there as we head into um, an electoral season in 2016. The poll asks about uh, several things, the governor's budget, people like it, uh, earned income tax credit we've talked about on the podcast, they like that idea, uh, the tax credit for the working poor. 
Then we get into some of these other issues, uh, taxes, uh, extending the Prop 30 taxes, the long-talked-about idea to tax commercial property at a higher rate, which was change Prop 13. Um, all of that's eh. Um, those numbers are way down. I mean, on split roll, it's down from 60 to 50 well, That's what I was going to say. It's, it's, it's dropped in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think that sort of ties into what we are talking, what we were talking about before with pensions, is that I, I would... I would hazard a guess that the diminished appetite for tax reform among voters has to do, and I know the right track, wrong track numbers don't bear that out, but has to do with some of the budget pressure being off on the state. And that, you know, the case for Prop 30 really was, I mean, if you look at, at the case the governor made from the beginning, just telling people, hey, look, this is, this is uh, we've been in a hard time. We've made a couple of years of deep cuts and, uh, and this is a temporary patch to get us through these hard times, and and voters ended up going along with that. Um, you know, it's a much more difficult case to to make as our budget is balanced that we need reform. Although, arguably, it's the perfect time to actually make thoughtful, systemic changes when we're not in a crisis. The political reality is often that 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 the opposite ends up being the case. Well. And then look to in this poll, if I can, really quickly, to just kind of uh, glance over some of the numbers. So, yes, yeah, so uh, the Prop 30 numbers, uh, a split there, um, only about uh, 46% of likely voters would extend. That's not a good number if you want to extend, though, again, it depends on how the campaign would be framed. But if you want to make it permanent, it drops to about 40, doesn't right. it? Right. Yeah. But it depends, again, on how the campaign yeah. is framed. And we've right. talked about extension. Do you, ex- you know, what's driving the, the reticence there? Maybe not the taxing the wealthy, but the sales tax part. Um, cigarette taxes. Oh yeah. Everybody says raise those. So let's just call that campaign over, shall we? Let's just, let's not <laughs> right. even talk about right. that. Just like prop 29, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Uh, until big tobacco weighed in, right. um, uh, extraction of oil and gas tax. Um, uh, that one is no, that one's no gimme. Uh, 47% yes, 48% oppose. That's likely voters. That's a really tough sell. Um, so message to Tom Steyer and others, but then you wanted to talk to about sales taxes as well, extending sales taxes to services, because here's what I was going to mention. The poll asked people, do we think the tax system in California needs a little bit of change? A lot of change, a lot of change is what most of the people polled in this survey say. But when you get to something like the broadening of sales tax to services, no, 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 we don't want to do it. 46% are opposed. Now, maybe that says that's not the thing they want. Come up with something else. Or maybe it says, uh, you wacky Californians. I always like to say you Californians, even though I'm a Californian now. I get it. Oh, well, welcome. 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 Finally, after 22 (laughs) years, I'm I'm a Californian. But you wacky Californians, you like change until you're presented with the ideas and then you don't like it so much. Well, that's true, right? It's like a hypothetical matchup where, you know, Hillary Clinton versus a generic Republican probably does, you know, probably does uh, less well than Hillary Clinton against Rand Paul or Hillary Clinton against any specific Republican, you know? Um, Yeah, sure. If you have infinite options, the idea of change is appealing. Once you start talking about what that change looks like, less so. I mean, the service tax thing, I, I... I mean, you did. You wrote a piece was last week about uh, Senator Hertzberg's proposal, and it sounds like that one's a work in progress. That by the time he's shaped this thing, it's going to be more than just a tax on service uh, services, but it's going to be lowering of the sales tax, maybe lowering some income taxes, and repackaged. I think we're going to see that one repackaged as a more fundamental tax reform. Um, again, 
whether that flies with voters, whether that flies any better than than the numbers we saw in this week's PPIC poll remains to be seen. But but I, I think it, there's there are some real warning signs for anybody who supports any of the ideas to extend any kind of tax, including tobacco, uh, in 2016. You know, I mean, and we're talking about the, you know, tobacco and oil severance. I almost put off on a separate because those are smaller pots of money. They earmark the money for specific purposes. Um, but on the big stuff, Prop 30 or SB8, you know, the Hertzberg proposal or uh, split roll. Uh, I think that this is a, a cautionary tale. And, and again, although you try to sort of uh, game the political system, right, that 2016 is going to be the good electorate because it's a presidential year and blah, blah, blah. But the appetite might not be there. I mean, the economy in some ways might be too strong for voters to embrace tax reform in 2016. We'll see. So let's talk. Uh, the only other number that I thought we should flag really quickly is this legalizing marijuana. We talked about it. Uh, yeah. PPIC fines 54%. That's the highest they've ever found. Favor legalizing marijuana, 44% opposed. That kind of mirrors a recent national poll on the issue. But a big division, depending on who you ask, younger Californians, much more in favor than older Californians. Latinos, Latinos 60% really, oppose really, it. Really interesting. Yeah. Ta- what, what do you take out of that? I, you know, I, it's just, I, I think it's the one issue I you can't think of another issue where you see this division within the Democratic coalition uh, where Latinos are on one side of the issue uh, and and you know blacks and whites are on the other um, you just you know it, I, I saw those numbers and I immediately thought back to you know the late 80s early 90s when it was the sleeping giant the Latino vote and the thought was that Latinos were gonna eventually be uh, that the Republican Party had a real opportunity with Latinos because they were more conservative on family values and things like that. That never materialized. And whether it was Prop 187 or anything, you know, whatever, whatever it was, other concerns trumped those, those, uh, those cultural tendencies, perhaps, to that that offered an opportunity to Republicans. But on an issue like this, I I wonder if we're seeing some of that in some way, a, a different reflection. I mean. Um, I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. I I do know that if, you know, if if uh, if pot was legalized for recreational use, odds are it'd be like alcohol. Right. Where do you see a lot of liquor stores? You see them in poor neighborhoods where you have a lot of blacks and Latinos in California. Um, And maybe there's a concern that the community would be. And I also think that there's a lot of recent immigrants, you know, first, second generation uh, families in California that have that have lived through years of drug wars and and the idea of legalizing a drug given um, some of the the social upheaval that uh, that drugs have caused in some of those countries it might just be a, a a bit antithetical to their political beliefs. And the other question they ask before we move on is uh, it kind of makes you think you can see where the opposition campaign could come from uh, once this happens. Um, they asked, how would you, would you be concerned that more underage people would try it? Right. 46% um, of the Californians polled said yes. 63% of the Latinos said that you can see a no campaign somewhere in that, I would argue, yeah. about the impact on children and things like that. So that's going to be an interesting watch. And that, and that 54%, right, that's an abstract number. But again, as we saw with Prop 19, there's a lot of politics and how you actually craft a legalization measure. You know, Prop 19 failed in part because it didn't put any caps on cultivation and growth. And so a lot of the small farmers, especially up in Northern California and and, the, and who are uh, doing pretty well and have money to spend, 
um, a lot of the f- small farmers thought that Prop 19 would put them out of business. There's a, a lot of debate over how you deal with the how would you regulate or change the regulations around the existing medical marijuana system. Again, a multi-million dollar business that if re- if recreational legalization uh, could some could put some of these people out of business or infringe on their business, you might see a funded no campaign just to maintain the status quo. So um, again, 54% in the abstract, yes, but I think there's a lot of politics there. And I think that 54% number um, is worrisome because I think there's going to be a no campaign if there is a or a couple of pot legalization measures. Uh, and some of it might come from people that are actually in the pot business. And I can't Again, say enough how it just makes me think Gavin Newsom, the guy to watch here. He has been doing these listening sessions in the state about legalization. And will he get behind one or will he say it's too complex or whatever? I mean, it, you, you're you going to need a figure to kind of a person maybe to to lead it forward. So we'll we'll see where that yeah. one where that one goes. Let's let's uh, let's throw in a couple of side dish measures here um, quickly. And I, and I want to um, jump in first to host prerogative. Um, with one that I think gets to the issue of how Republicans deal with the changing electorate and Latinos. Nice little glimpse. We talked about the House of Origin deadline at the state capitol briefly. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the podcast because, I don't know, it's House of Origin. they got another whole house to go to. But one bill that I found interesting with the vote count in the state Senate was SB4, Ricardo Lara's state senator from Los Angeles, his bill to expand health care benefits to those without legal status, undocumented immigrants. Uh, It was a much broader bill earlier in the year. It has been scaled back to allow them into uh, covered California if the feds agree. Uh, People who are under 19 years old in the Medi-Cal system. Anyway, it got out with two Republican votes out of the state Senate. Anthony Canelo, state senator from the Central Valley, from uh, Stanislaus County, and Andy Vidak, state senator from the Fresno area. Um, both of them voting for this measure, to me, that really tells a lot about their constituency, their districts, the impact of uh, helping the Latino working poor community. It's an interesting moment. I yeah. Thought. And, uh, and how the demographic changes are changing the nature of the Central Valley, you know, uh, and the Republican Party. I mean, very interesting, both you know, from sort of swing ish districts, but. I mean, the Central Valley was considered you know, sort of the heart of what's left of Republican California. Uh, and you're seeing uh, you know, demographic changes, I think, change the politics there. So that's a, um, a more serious piece of policy that went through the Capitol. And uh, by the way, Twitter handle John Myers. And now Anthony's side dish Twitter handle Anthony York 49. Well, Do you have an equally serious measure that I went just, through the serious, Capitol? Serious tax reform proposal went <laughs> through the assembly uh, from a, another Republican, Assemblyman Mark Steinnorth, whose bill to provide a $100 tax credit for... People who adopt pets, pet pet owners. Um, clearly, this is the tax reform that California has needed. And who needs Prop 30 if you have uh, AB 976, right? Um, but you know, I, I I just want everyone to see if they can visualize what Anthony's face here. He <laughs> he he's he's got this very serious. Very serious. Well, I mean, look, the film tax credit apparently brought uh, Veep and True Detective. Was it True Detective and Veep back to California? Some HBO show. I don't get out A couple much. of HBO shows yeah. back to California. <laughs> so maybe this will lead to massive ferret adoptions in California. I don't know. Um, no, but I, but I do think, I mean, look, it's a $100 tax credit, but 
I mean, is this really is this really the discussion we want to be well, having? Well, let me defend it for a moment and say that I know Please. that one cost to local governments are the shelters and all of these things that cost a lot of money. If you can get the animals out of the shelter, maybe you can reduce a fiscal pressure on local governments. I'm trying to find the... We can discuss alternative me- measures to get those animals out but, of shelters, but that's another podcast. But, but, I, but, I, but I mean, maybe your point, too, here is the tax credit game in California, yeah, where like, I mean, there's a tax credit for everything. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, if we're... And, and, if you look at the economic disparities in this state and where some t- tax relief might be needed and some of the struggles that businesses have in this state as well, you know, is this, is this really, I know the cost to the general fund is, it's not tremendous. I think it's estimated at about $2 million. And, but is this really what we want to be talking about in California when we talk about tax policy? And with that, we'll move to to topic three, Um, something to talk about, something actually to read uh, this weekend across California. Um, Our final topic this week on the California Politics Podcast, interesting profile that runs in this weekend's California Sunday Magazine. You can find that in all of the major papers. Big shout out to the folks who've put that uh, newly together. CalSunday.com. There you go. Is that that their URL? Yeah. Good. Great. Well, Doug McRae doing a great job as editor of the, of the new magazine. I think it's yeah. CaliforniaSunday.com, isn't it? Let's, let's see. Okay. He's going to pull out his uh, trusty laptop here while I keep going. But yeah, a good shout out to those folks. They've got a profile of, um, of the quiet but powerful First Lady Ann Gust Brown, governor's wife. Um, interesting, I think, most Californians don't spend a lot of time watching her or watching her influence, which I think is obviously part of the story. Those of us who cover politics and um, who have covered the governor a lot. Uh, and have so, gone to China. And have gone to China and watched them in person. Uh, you and me both, Mr. York, uh, sleep deprived as we were. But um, I think this rings true with a lot of what we know about her. So, uh, you know, it's, it's worth checking out and reading. A um, couple of things I wanted to highlight out of the uh, out of the profile so when um, there were a series of things that talked about anecdotes of how she had uh, been involved in things with the governor, because she's a special unpaid advisor to the governor, uh, the governor's former uh, co-chief of staff, Jim Humes, uh, who had been with him since uh, a long time and now has moved on to the bench. He was appointed uh, as, as a justice, as a judge. Uh, Jim Humes said in the piece, she doesn't suffer fools gladly and she knows how to make her point and express it directly. That could be putting off to some people, but she doesn't blow her top. But if people expect tea with the Queen of England when they meet Anne, they're going to be disappointed. Uh, We hear that a lot about the influence she has. And then um, when the governor was asked in this uh, piece to highlight some of his wife's biggest individual achievements, he said that, you know, he basically said everything I've done has been influenced or helped by working together with her. That's a big deal when you look at what other um, first ladies, first spouses have done in their roles. And it rings true with something that um, Ms. Brown said to me in a TV interview I did with her in 2013. Here was the quick question and comment. You've got your sleeves rolled up just like everybody else. I do have my sleeves rolled up and I do try to get involved in any way I can be helpful. Yeah, and I dig in on whatever issue that Jerry needs the help on and the additional brain power and, uh, and try and do the best I can. And to that, I think, interesting, Anthony, something you feel like you learned out of this, that there are some issues we didn't know that she had dug into so deeply. Yeah, I mean, this piece uh, gets into the fact that it was uh, the first lady who really convinced a skeptical governor to uh, to embrace the high-speed rail. And that, um, you know, uh, Ann Gus, who comes from a Republican family, 
uh, from Michigan, and, and she herself was a Republican until Brown ran for president in 92. She changed her registration so she could vote for him in the primary. Um, and uh, But that it was really her support for the high-speed rail project that brought the reluctant governor on board. That um, that was new. I hadn't I hadn't heard that before. I guess the governor mentioned that briefly in a in a in a at an event, maybe at the groundbreaking of the the high speed rail. Um, but that was sort of lost in the news of the day. There, I thought that was that was um, a good illustration. And then there's also sort of an illustration of sort of the, the lighter side of Ann Gust that we um, we you know we, we got some glimpse of that only after spending a few days with the governor and his wife on 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 a trip. You know, you sort of. If you're, you know, we saw a little bit of it and saw a little bit of the, I saw their dynamic and how, uh, and sort of her sense of humor and how she, how she sort of fits in, in the inner circle there. Um, but there's the, uh, the allegory of the plastic poop that, uh, is that an allegory? No. no, Plato's allegory of the cave and Gus's allegory of the plastic poop. Oh, well, no, well Pla- it's not an allegory. Plato's another yeah. podcast, but you want to <laughs> just say it's Plato. it's the joke she pulled on the governor. I yeah, mean, you can yeah, yeah. it's in the piece. And, but... and it's and it's part of, of, we, of he what... thought it was Sutter. But go yeah, ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, um, but, you know, I mean, I think if you look at who Brown's closest advisor is now, it's obviously Anne. If you look at who Brown's closest advisor was when he was governor the first time, it was Jacques Bazraghi, who's uh, sort of been been banished since Anne came on the scene. And I think in His many beret ways, has been missing for quite a few years. And in many ways, I think, you know, it's an oversimplification, but I've thought this for a while, that you can sort of shorthand the difference between Brown 1 and Brown 2 as the difference between Jacques and Anne a little. And I think that this piece offers some, some good insight on that. There's a, a blind quote from a lobbyist uh, around the Capitol that I also thought was interesting who said in the piece, I'm worried when she's not in our meetings because I know she's an influencer. You know, it's a really good yeah. uh, moment there. If, if the first lady's not there, what does that say about your chances of getting something? And the governor's sister, Kathleen Brown, uh, said in the piece right after that, that she sits closest, talking about the first lady, Ann Gust Brown, she sits closest to the center and has the radar to look out for danger or risk. And that's something, obviously, that's very important to a guy like Jerry Brown. She sees maybe what he may not see and and guides him in a way. And, there's the, and has he, his interests in mind. You know, right. it's, always, it's always an issue in politics as um, everybody has their own interest, you know. People, their own agenda. Their own agenda and, and uh, you know, power for its own sake. And, and I mean, Anne seem, seemingly has very little of that and really does seem to have her husband's best interest. You know, first and foremost, without any apparent political ambitions of her own, although that's also mentioned in the piece. Well, that's the end of the piece. That's what I was going to say. Uh, I mean, you noticed it uh, when we were talking before we taped the podcast. Anthony noticed it that it, it, I guess, what leaves us very slight window open about you know, does she have her own political ambitions? Most notably, could she be appointed Attorney General if Kamala Harris wins the U.S. Senate in 2016 and serve out the remaining? Um, two years of Harris's term, and Clearly she says not. she could. She didn't go to Yale, so no, Brown only appoints <laughs> lawyers from Yale. <laughs> so she's totally uh, she's barred from that. Um, but you know, and she says, "Oh, you know, no, you know, I, I I wouldn't have any interest in that." But you know, could I do that? Could I do the job? Yes, I could do it. So it, you know, but it, again, I think it would it would require a, a very different person than we have seen those of us who have seen her in action, which is. Very interested, as you said, in the governor's agenda, in his agenda, 
and in helping shape that agenda, not necessarily forging her own. And not re- not real comfortable in the limelight. You know, much more comfortable behind the scenes. I, th- I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, we saw her be funny uh, in China. Behind we, the scenes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, no, we don't have any stories we're not telling you, podcast audience. There's no I, I, in the I cone of one. silence. No, I have one. <laughs> okay. Well, you'll have to find Anthony on the streets of Sacramento it, it, it and ask him that. It involves a cell phone app that, you know, we're not going to discuss. It was humor. It wasn't anything. Yeah. It was no, like, no. you know, state secret. That no would, animals were injured. That would bring the state of California to a collapse. Let's leave it there for Let's do that. another California politics podcast. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) That's Anthony York from the Grizzly Bear Project. I'm John Myers from KQED News. As always, thanks for listening.